Chapter Twenty One of the Pathfinder. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Pathfinder by James Fenimore Cooper. Chapter Twenty One. Each one has had his supping mess, the cheese is put into the press, the pans and bowls clean scalded all, reared up against the milk-house wall. Attributed to Cotton It seemed strange to Mabel Dunham, as she passed along on her way to find her female companion, that others should be so composed, while she herself felt as if the responsibilities of life and death rested on her shoulders. It is true that distrust of June's motives mingled with her forebodings, but when she came to recall the affectionate and natural manner of the young Indian girl, and all the evidences of good faith and sincerity she had seen in her conduct during the familiar intercourse of their journey, she rejected the idea with the unwillingness of a generous disposition to believe ill of others. She saw, however, that she could not put her companions properly on their guard without letting them into the secret of her conference with June, and she found herself compelled to act cautiously, and with a forethought to which she was unaccustomed, more especially in a matter of so much moment. The soldier's wife was told to transport the necessaries into the blockhouse, and admonished not to be far from it at any time during the day. Mabel did not explain her reasons. She merely stated that she had detected some signs in walking about the island, which induced her to apprehend that the enemy had more knowledge of its position than had been previously believed, and that they too, at least, would do well to be in readiness to seek a refuge at the shortest notice. It was not difficult to arouse the apprehension of this person, who, though a stout-hearted Scotchwoman, was ready enough to listen to anything that confirmed her dread of Indian cruelties. As soon as Mabel believed that her companion was sufficiently frightened to make her wary, she threw out some hints touching the inexpediency of letting the soldiers know the extent of their own fears. This was done with a view to prevent discussions and inquiries that might embarrass our heroine, she determining to render her uncle, the corporal, and his men more cautious by adopting a different course. Unfortunately, the British army could not have furnished a worse person for the particular duty that he was now required to discharge than Corporal McNab, the individual who had been left in command during the absence of Sergeant Dunham. On the one hand, he was resolute, prompt, familiar with all the details of a soldier's life, and used to war. On the other, he was supercilious as regards the provincials, opinionated on every subject connected with the narrow limits of his professional practice much disposed to fancy the British Empire the centre of all that is excellent in the world, and Scotland the focus of, at least, all moral excellence in that empire. In short, he was an epitome, though on a scale suited to his rank, of those very qualities which were so peculiar to the servants of the crown that were sent into the colonies, as these servants estimated themselves in comparison with the natives of the country or, in other words, he considered the American as an animal inferior to the parent stock, and viewed all his notions of military service, in particular, as undigested and absurd. 
A more impracticable subject, therefore, could not well have offered for the purpose of Mabel, and yet she felt obliged to lose no time in putting her plan in execution. "'My father has left you a responsible command, Corporal,' she said, as soon as she could catch McNab a little apart. "'For should the island fall into the hands of the enemy, not only should we be captured, but the party that is now out would in all probability become their prisoners too.' "'It needs no journey from Scotland to this place to know the facts needful to be of that way of thinking,' returned McNab dryly. "'I do not doubt your understanding it as well as myself, Mr. McNab, but I am fearful that you veterans, accustomed as you are to dangers and battles, are little apt to overlook some of the precautions that may be necessary in a situation as peculiar as ours.' They say Scotland is no conquered country, young woman, but I'm thinking there must be some mistake in the matter, as we, her children, are so drowsy-headed and apt to be o'ertaken when we least expect it. Nay, my good friend, you mistake my meaning. In the first place, I'm not thinking of Scotland at all, but of this island, and then I am far from doubting your vigilance when you think it necessary to practice it but my great fear is that there may be danger to which your courage will make you indifferent. "'My courage, Mistress Dunham, is doubtless of a very poor quality, being nothing but Scottish courage. Your father's is Yankee, and were he here among us we should see different preparations beyond a doubt. Well, times are getting wrong. When foreigners hold commissions and carry halberds in Scottish corps, and I no wonder that paddles are lost, and campaigns go wrong and foremost. Mabel was almost in despair, but the quiet warning of June was still too vividly impressed on her mind to allow her to yield the matter. She changed her mode of operating, therefore, still clinging to the hope of getting the whole party within the blockhouse, without being compelled to betray the source whence she obtained her notices of the necessity of vigilance. "'I dare say you are right, Corporal McNab,' she observed, "'for I have often heard of the heroes of your country, "'who have been among the first of the civilized world, "'if what they tell me of them is true.' "'Have you read the history of Scotland, Mr. Stunham?' demanded the corporal, looking up at his pretty companion for the first time with something like a smile on his hard, repulsive countenance. "'I have read little of it, Corporal.' but I've heard much more. The lady who brought me up had Scottish blood in her veins, and was fond of the subject. "'I'll warrant ye, the sergeant not troubled himself to expatiate on the renown of the country where his regiment was raised?' "'My father has other things to think of, and the little I know was got from the lady I've mentioned.' "'She'll not be forgetting to tell ye a Wallace.' "'Of him?' I've even read a good deal. And of Bruce, and of the affair of Bannockburn? Of that, too, as well as Culloden Muir. The last of these battles was then a recent event, it having actually been fought within the recollection of our heroine, whose notions of it, however, were so confused that she scarcely appreciated the effect her allusion might produce on her companion. She knew it had been a victory, and had often heard the guests of her patroness 
mentioned it with triumph, and she fancied their feelings would find a sympathetic chord in those of every British soldier. Unfortunately, MacNab had fought throughout that luckless day on the side of the pretender, and a deep scar that garnished his face had been left there by the sabre of a German soldier in the service of the House of Hanover. He fancied that his wound bled afresh at Mabel's illusion, and it is certain that the blood rushed to his face in a torrent, as if it would pour out of his skin at the cicatrix. "'Hoot! Hoot away!' he fairly shouted. "'With your Culloden and Sheriff Muir's young woman, you'll not be understanding the subject at all, and will manifest not only wisdom but modesty in speaking of your own country and its many failings. King George has some loyal subjects in the colonies, no doubt, but twill be a long time before he sees or hears any good of them. Mabel was surprised at the corporal's heat, for she had not the smallest idea where the shoe pinched, but she was determined not to give up the point. "'I've always heard that the Scotch had two of the good qualities of soldiers,' she said, "'courage and circumspection, and I feel persuaded that Corporal MacNab will sustain the national renown.' "'Ask your own father,' Mistress Dunham, he is acquainted with Corporal MacNab, and will not be backward to point out his demerits. We have been in battle together, and he is my superior officer, and has a sort of official right to give the characters of his subordinates. My father thinks well of you, MacNab, or he would not have left you in charge of this island and all it contains, his own daughter included. Among other things, I well know that he calculates largely on your prudence. He expects the blockhouse in particular to be strictly attended to. If he wishes to defend the honour of the fifty-fifth behind logs, he ought to have remained in command himself. For, to speak frankly, it goes against the Scotchman's blood and opinions to be beaten out of the field, even before he is attacked. We are a broadsword men, and love to stand foot to foot with the foe. This American mode of fighting that is getting into so much favour will destroy the reputation of His Majesty's army, if it not destroy its spirit. No true soldier despises caution. Even Major Duncan himself, than whom there is none braver, is celebrated for his care of his men. Lundy has his weakness, and is fast forgetting the broadsword and open heaths in his tree and rifle practice. But, Mr. Stunham, take the word of an old soldier, who has seen his fifty-fifth year, when he tells you that there is no surer method to encourage your enemy than to seem to fear him, and that there is no danger in this Indian warfare that the fancies and imaginations of your Americans have not enlarged upon, until they see a savage in every bush. We Scots come from a naked region, have no need, and less relish for covers, and so you'll be seeing, Mistress Dunham. The corporal gave a spring into the air, fell forward on his face, and rolled over on his back the whole passing so suddenly that Mabel had scarcely heard the sharp crack of the rifle that sent a bullet through his body. Our heroine did not shriek, did not even tremble, for the occurrence was too sudden, too awful, 
and too unexpected for that exhibition of weakness. On the contrary, she stepped hastily forward with a natural impulse to aid her companion. There was just enough of life left to McNab to betray his entire consciousness of all that had passed. His countenance had the wild look of one who had been overtaken by death by surprise, and Mabel, in her cooler moments, fancied that it showed the tardy repentance of a willful and obstinate sinner. "'You'll be getting into the blockhouse as fast as possible,' McNab whispered, as Mabel leaned over him to catch his dying words. Then came over our heroine the full consciousness of her situation, and of the necessity of exertion. She cast a rapid glance at the body at her feet, saw that it had ceased to breathe, and fled. It was but a few minutes' run to the blockhouse, the door of which Mabel had barely gained when it was closed violently in her face by Jenny, the soldier's wife, who in blind terror thought only of her own safety. The reports of five or six rifles were heard while Mabel was calling out for admittance, and the additional terror they produced prevented the woman within from undoing quickly the very fastenings she had been so expert in applying. After a minute's delay, however, Mabel found the door reluctantly yielding to her constant pressure, and she forced her slender body through the opening the instant it was large enough to allow of its passage. By this time Mabel's heart ceased to beat tumultuously, and she gained sufficient self-command to act collectedly. Instead of yielding to the almost convulsive efforts of her companion to close the door again, she held it open long enough to ascertain that none of her own party was in sight or likely on the instant to endeavour to gain admission. Then she allowed the opening to be shut. Her orders and proceedings now became more calm and rational, but a single bar was crossed, and Jenny was directed to stand in readiness to remove even that and any application from a friend. She then ascended the ladder to the room above, where by means of a loophole she was enabled to get as good a view of the island as the surrounding bushes would allow. Admonishing her associate below to be firm and steady, she made as careful an examination of the environs as her situation permitted. To her great surprise, Mabel could not at first see a living soul on the island, friend or enemy. Neither Frenchman nor Indian was visible, though a small straggling white cloud that was floating before the wind told her in which quarter she ought to look for them. The rifles had been discharged from the direction of the island whence June had come, though whether the enemy were on that island, or had actually landed on her own, Mabel could not say. Going to the loop that commanded a view of the spot where McNab lay, her blood curdled at perceiving all three of his soldiers lying apparently lifeless at his side. These men had rushed to a common centre at the first alarm, and had been shot down almost simultaneously by the invisible foe whom the corporal had affected to despise. Neither Cap nor Lieutenant Muir was to be seen. With a beating heart Mabel examined every opening through the trees, and ascended even to the upper story or garret of the blockhouse, where she got a full view of the whole island, so far as its covers would allow, but with no better success. She had expected to see the body of her uncle lying on the grass like those of the soldiers, but it was nowhere visible. Turning towards the spot where the boat lay, Mabel saw that it was still fastened to the shore, and then she supposed that by some accident Muir had been prevented from effecting his retreat in that quarter. 
In short, the island lay in the quiet of the grave, the bodies of the soldiers rendering the scene as fearful as it was extraordinary. "'For God's holy sake, Mistress Mabel!' called out the woman from below, for though her fear had become too ungovernable to allow her to keep silence, our heroine's superior refinement, more than the regimental station of her father, still controlled her mode of address. "'Mistress Mabel, tell me if any of our friends are living. I think I hear groans that grow fainter and fainter, and fear they will all be tomahawked.' Mabel now remembered that one of the soldiers was this woman's husband, and she trembled at what must be the immediate effect of her sorrow, should his death become suddenly known to her. The groans, too, gave a little hope, though she feared they might come from her uncle, who lay out of view. "'We are in his holy keeping, Jenny,' she answered. "'We must trust in Providence, while we neglect none of its benevolent means of protecting ourselves. Be careful with the door. On no account open it without my directions.' "'Oh, tell me, Mistress Mabel, if you can anywhere see Sandy. If I could only let him know that I am in safety, the good man would be easier in his mind, whether free or a prisoner.' Sandy was Jenny's husband, and he lay dead in plain view of the loop from which our heroine was then looking. "'You'll not tell me if you're seeing a Sandy,' the woman repeated from below, impatient at Mabel's silence. "'There are some of our people gathered about the body of McNab,' was the answer, for it seemed sacrilegious in her eyes to tell a direct untruth under the awful circumstances in which she was placed. "'Is Sandy among them?' demanded the woman, in a voice that sounded appalling by its hoarseness and energy. "'He may be, certainly, for I see one, two, three, four, and all in the scarlet coats of the regiment.' "'Sandy!' called out the woman frantically. "'Why do you not care for yourself, Sandy? Come hither the instant, man, and share your wife's fortunes in weal or woe. It's no moment for your silly discipline and vain-glorious notions of honour. Sandy! Sandy!' Mabel heard the bar turn, and then the door creaked on its hinges. Expectation, not to say terror, held her in suspense at the loop and she soon beheld Jenny rushing through the bushes in the direction of the cluster of the dead. It took the woman but an instant to reach the fatal spot. So sudden and unexpected had been the blow, that she in her terror did not appear to comprehend its weight. Some wild and half-frantic notion of a deception troubled her fancy, and she imagined that the men were trifling with her fears. She took her husband's hand, and it was still warm while she thought a covert smile was struggling on his lip. "'Why will you fool life away, Sandy?' she cried, pulling at the arm. "'You'll all be murdered by these accursed Indians, and you not taken to the block like trusty soldiers. Away! Away! And not be losing the precious moments!' In her desperate efforts the woman pulled the body of her husband in a way to cause the head to turn completely over, when the small hole in the temple— caused by the entrance of a rifle-bullet, and a few drops of blood trickling over the skin, revealed the meaning of her husband's silence. As the horrid truth flashed in its full extent on her mind, the woman clasped her hands, gave a shriek that pierced the glades of every island near, and fell at length on the dead body of the soldier. Thrilling, heart-reaching, appalling as was that shriek, 
It was melody to the cry that followed it so quickly as to blend the sounds. The terrific war-whoop arose out of the covers of the island, and some twenty savages, horrible in their paint and the other devices of Indian ingenuity, rushed forward, eager to secure the coveted scalps. Arrowhead was foremost, and it was his tomahawk that brained the insensible Jenny, and her reeking hair was hanging at his girdle as a trophy in less than two minutes after she had quitted the blockhouse. His companions were equally active, and McNabb and his soldiers no longer presented the quiet aspect of men who slumbered, they were left in their gore, unequivocally butchered corpses. All this passed in much less time than has been required to relate it, and all this did Mabel witness. She had stood riveted to the spot, gazing on the whole horrible scene, as if enchained by some charm, nor did the idea of self or of her own danger once obtrude itself on her thoughts but no sooner did she perceive the place where the men had fallen covered with savages, exulting in the success of their surprise, than it occurred to her that Jenny had left the blockhouse door unbarred. Her heart beat violently, for that defence alone stood between her and immediate death, and she sprang toward the ladder with the intention of descending, to make sure of it. Her foot had not yet reached the floor of the second story, however, when she heard the door grating on its hinges, and she gave herself up for lost. Sinking on her knees, the terrified but courageous girl endeavoured to prepare herself for death, and to raise her thoughts to God. The instinct of life, however, was too strong for prayer, and while her lips moved, the jealous senses watched every sound beneath. When her ears heard the bars, which went on pivots secured to the centre of the door, turning into their fastenings, not one, as she herself had directed, with a view to admit her uncle should he apply, but all three. She started again to her feet, all spiritual contemplations vanishing in her actual temporal condition, and it seemed as if all her faculties were absorbed in the sense of hearing. The thoughts are active in a moment so fearful. At first Mabel fancied that her uncle had entered the blockhouse, and she was about to descend the ladder and throw herself into his arms. Then the idea that it might be an Indian— who had barred the door to shut out intruders while he plundered at leisure, arrested the movement. The profound stillness below was unlike the bold, restless movements of Cap, and it seemed to savour more of the artifices of an enemy. If a friend at all, it could only be her uncle or the quartermaster, for the horrible conviction now presented itself to our heroine that to these two and herself were the whole party suddenly reduced if indeed the two latter survived. This consideration held Mabel in check, and for full two minutes more a breathless silence reigned in the building. During this time the girl stood at the foot of the upper ladder, the trap which led to the lower opening on the opposite side of the floor. The eyes of Mabel were riveted on this spot, for she now began to expect to see at each instant the horrible sight of a savage face at the hole. This apprehension soon became so intense that she looked about her for a place of concealment. The procrastination of the catastrophe she now fully expected, the procrastination of the catastrophe she now fully expected, though it were only for a moment, afforded a relief. The room contained several barrels, and behind two of these Mabel crouched, placing her eyes at an opening by which she could still watch the trap. She made another effort to pray 
but the moment was too horrible for that relief. She thought, too, that she heard a low rustling, as if one were ascending the lower ladder with an effort at caution so great as to betray itself by its own excess, then followed a creaking that she was certain came from one of the steps of the ladder, which had made the same noise under her own light weight as she ascended. This was one of those instants into which are compressed the sensations of years of ordinary existence. Life, death, eternity, and extreme bodily pain were all standing out in bold relief from the plane of everyday occurrences, and she might have been taken at that moment for a beautiful, pallid representation of herself, equally without motion and without vitality. But while such was the outward appearance of the form, never had there been a time in her brief career when Mabel heard more acutely, saw more clearly, or felt more vividly. As yet nothing was visible at the trap, but her ears, rendered exquisitely sensitive by intense feeling, distinctly acquainted her that someone was within a few inches of the opening in the floor. Next followed the evidence of her eyes, which beheld the dark hair of an Indian rising so slowly through the passage that the movements of the head might be likened to that of the minute hand of a clock. Then came the dark skin and wild features, until the whole of the swarthy face had risen above the floor. The human countenance seldom appears to advantage when partially concealed, and Mabel imagined many additional horrors as she first saw the black roving eyes, and the expression of wildness as the savage countenance was revealed, as it might be, inch by inch. But when the entire head was raised above the floor, a second and a better look assured our heroine that she saw the gentle, anxious, and even handsome face of June. End of chapter.